just to give you my perspective where I'm coming from, and then I'll talk about the foreign-funded NGOs. I have a background which is a little different from others in the panel, in the sense that while you are involved in the NGOs in India, or the government that regulates the NGOs, and the Indian institutions, different kind of institutions involved in social civic work. In my case, I live in the US for the last 45 years. I visit India every year three or four times without fail. This trip is six weeks long, so I'm here quite a lot, so I'm very much in touch. And for the last 25 years, I've had no day job or business or any other activity and I've spent all my time volunteering for my own NGO called Infinity Foundation, which I started with my own funds. The purpose of this NGO is a watchdog in the US on what US institutions are doing concerning India. And I believe I'm the only one of that kind, an Indian watchdog an Indian gaze based in the US, not based in Delhi looking at some somebody far away, but based in the US, spending all my time. I study what the government is doing, US government, think tanks, school educational material on India, universities and academic uh, conferences, the church, and all kinds of various organizations that are involved in the study of India. In fact, uh, until 10 years ago, then I didn't have the funding to continue, but until 10 years ago, I used to maintain the only database of everyone who is in the US involved in the study of India or in engagement with India or encounter with India of any kind, uh, for a database of who's who, uh, whether they are in religion, history, philosophy, political science, anthropology, international relations, etc., etc. I had a database of these guys because I would scan all the journals, I would uh, look at all the conferences, get a copy of every PhD concerning India regardless of discipline. So I was uh, kind of one man with a group of people helping me that I got on board. Uh, kind of, it was getting overwhelming, huge thing you can't just do. And often the, I would find that uh, the Indian government policies are so naive, they don't really understand the U.S. They're just somebody sitting here imagining the U.S. to be something. A very po uh, the view of India, or the view of the U.S. that the Indians have is pop culture, movies, sports, uh, fashions, products. But what are the deep institutional mechanisms doing is something that people in India have not really studied. So I decided to do that. Now, what got me go the the work was not ngo oriented it was on many other things i described but what got me particularly interested in the ngos that the us funds operating in india so i'm looking at the other side of what you're looking at you're calling foreign funded but have you been to the headquarters? Have you called, gone around? Have you looked beneath the surface? And I'm not saying gone for a conference three days and give you a nice treatment, you come back. But have you really done your due diligence? Have you done the, uh, the you know, Freedom of Information Act we have? Have you used it in the U.S., which I use a lot, uh, to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it? And I have. 
Now, what uh, and in one in incident comes to mind, which started me on this track. I was having lunch in Princeton University. I live in that town, and I know some of the people and the professors there. So, one African American joined us. I was talking to some professors having lunch. One African American joined us, and they introduced us. And he said, oh, you're from India? I just came back from India. So I said, oh, well, that's interesting. What were you doing there? And he said, I'm part of the Afro-Dalit project. Now, I never heard of such a project. So I said, what is this Afro-Dalit project? And he said, oh, you don't know? You're from India? You don't know what is Afro-Dalit? I said, no, no, I don't know. He said, well, the, the uh, Dalits are the Africans of India. They're the blacks of India. And the Brahmins are the whites of India. And we are going there to teach them the history of black-white relations in America, to teach them what exactly, how to interpret their own racial relations in India. So, the, I, how the blacks have uh, been enslaved in America is how the Dalits are being enslaved in India. And we are being sent there to give them youth, it's called youth empowerment. Education, youth empowerment, camps, and human rights, and so on. So, I got very concerned. And nobody thought about this. So I went to his office and he had, a, he had a map, which is on the cover of my book, Breaking India. He had a map of balkanized India. And I got a scan of that. And he told me there is Dalitstan.org. So I went to Dalitstan.org. And then I said, who funds it? He gave me his very innocent, very transparent fellow. And he said, this guy, this guy, these agencies, this church, this group, they fund it. So I contacted all these people. And said, I'm a, I'm a reporter, I'm a, a, a researcher, I'm very impressed by all this work you're doing in India and would like to know more. And they all send me big boxes of all kind of material, really proud, showing off what their projects in India are. A lot of them. I built a database on what the Mormons are doing, what the Lutheran Church is doing, you know, all these different churches, are, different groups. I, or the, I built that. Then I hired some students from Princeton University to scan it and analyze and figure out what's going on. That is how my project started in the 90s. This is one of many, many things I do. This is one of the projects. So this led me to a huge network in the United States. Dalit Freedom Network is one example. They're based in Denver. And you wonder why some white guys, Christians, who, whose own record of race in the United States is not that clean, would be interested in saving the Dalits in India, while in their own country they have got a racial reputation. Why, why is that going? So I was looking at all the, like, uh, the Joshua Project, I looked at all kind of these projects, and I started going to their conferences. Uh, they have a lot of conferences on uh, how you convert Indian students when they come to United States. You become friends, they're lonely, you offer them help. You, you know, you gradually, gradually don't talk about religion first, respect them, all these kind of strategies, what called inculturation. So I learned, I became very expert at that. I made a lot of friends in the various uh, theological seminaries. I have a Princeton Theological Seminary is one of the premier seminaries in the world where they train the Christian theology, philosophy, and they have a fairly significant uh, department on Hinduism where they're studying the Hindus as the other, from a Christian point of view. What, how to engage the Hindu, what you think of them, how do you argue with them, how do you debate with them, how do you make them happy. You learn, you, they learn shlokas, they learn bhajans, how you can make them very happy, how you can get inside their village and uh, disarm them, how you can also bring them down if you need to. If in your church, 
somebody, one of your church members comes and says, my daughter or son want to marry a Hindu, how you can, how you can inform the young couple about your point of view and their point of view and how you can argue, something that no Hindu pundit in the temple can do. If you, if a Indian uh, Hindu is marrying a Christian and he takes, uh, I saw a local temple, one young man brought this white girl and they wanted to ask questions to the priest and the priest is embarrassed, doesn't know anything. But here they are training very systematically how to engage these others. So I, my knowledge of foreign funded NGOs starts not with what is happening in India but what is happening where the funding starts. So I have studied this very systematically and then uh, I, along with the funding is the ideology. Ideology, what are the ideas? After all, funding is not just given for the heck of it. Funding is to promote certain ideas, grand narratives, history, identity formation, separatism, all of these. And I'm not only talking about church, I'm talking about Kashmir separatists. I've gone and seen how they're funded. Sikh separatists, Khalistanis, how they're funded. Asia Society. In New York, one of the premier organizations, they have some organizations here also. Uh, one of the board members, uh, he, he is the owner of uh, Ethan Allen Furniture Company, big furniture company. And on his website, it says one of his son died in uh, Kashmir fighting the Indian Armed Forces. He was a rebellion, he was a terrorist kind of what Indians would call, or the army would call a terrorist, but from their point of view, they're fighting for freedom. So anyway, these are the sort of things I've tracked. I've gone to conferences on Dalit freedom and liberation of Dalit, I've gone to Bangkok, gone to Hong Kong, uh, many, many conferences in various parts of the world where a whole nexus, a whole uh, network of such agencies exist. Uh, US-based and European-based are the ones that I've looked at mostly uh, and their target is India and their target is uh, basically intervening in India in terms of uh, the for identities of uh, people, the tribal areas and young people, modern people. They've segmented Indians into different groups and categories and for each of them they've got very, uh, you know, plans, strategies, products, uh, you know, funding. So it's a fairly large enterprise. And uh, I think the database that they've created on India is probably more sophisticated than any government in India has. Very, very detailed database at the village level of uh, all kind of demographics and social socio demographics. So the foreign funding nexus, as I call it, is money, ideas and ideology, forums and channels. Like this is a forum where we are meeting. There is huge number of such forums. They are in universities, they are in think tanks, they are in church groups, they are in human rights organizations. There is a very large number of these, uh, these uh, forums and channels. And uh, training of people. So they train people. Some of them are Westerners who are the trainer, the teachers' teachers. They are generally Westerners. And then they are uh, Indians who go there and they are given some advanced training. In, Indians go there, like in, in uh, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, they have often uh, groups of Indians who come and go, uh, go through various durations of education, and they invite me as a, a local guy, I always go there and meet them, say hi, just to find out what's going on. So that's the source of my views, it's not opinions I just made up or read some newspaper or talk to a few people, I've done a systematic what you would call industry analysis. 
before all this, I used to be a consultant, and then I, I used to be a, a, my, I own my own companies. And when I was a consultant, my job was industry analysis, which means a client like AT&T would say, why don't you analyze this industry? And my job was to analyze who's who, what they do, who's got money, who makes and who supplies and who markets. So I started looking at India studies as an industry in America. India studies is an American industry which employs a few thousand people whose job is to do this. So no one, no Ministry of External Affairs bothered to do this. Nobody, no journalist is, knows, the, our journalists are jokers because they, when they talk about the US, they really don't know what they're talking about. They have a very superficial idea. They have never gone beneath the surface. So to go beneath the surface, you have to become sophisticated. You have to be able to be one of them. You have to really get to know how to understand, decode what they are telling you. You have to read annual reports, lots of them. You have to attend seminars, workshops like this, make friends with people. And I've been doing that. And this is my full-time job. I don't do It's not a short kind of part-time thing. So based on this, I find that a large part of the foreign funding uh, for people in India are naive and unconscious in the role they are playing in the giant scheme of things. They are a little cog in a wheel and the little cog is not told too much, he's not told the whole picture, he's just told what he needs to know. Yeah, and so they are very innocent about it. They don't really, most people who work in these Ford Foundation and Templeton Foundation and all these, the Indians don't really have the whole picture. You can't blame them. They've just been, maybe the very senior people know. And they, don't, they prefer to not know. Look the other side. So, in the U.S., I started looking at the history of America. Where does this mindset come from? And the American mindset, the, the British and the European mentality towards the other came from the colonial experience. Because they had colonies, so they got to, they, had, they framed ideas of what these other non-white people are like, and they came up with British, French, all these different colonizers had their ideas based on colonial experience. America didn't really have colonies in the same sense. So the American experience of the other came from the fact that they are the, they are the diaspora who came from Europe. Americans are the Englishmen who came from Europe and they had to clear the land from the natives. So they had to get rid of these people to clear the land and make it theirs. So this whole uh, experience starting in the 1600s of portraying the natives as primitive people, violent people, they ill-treat their women, they don't have human rights, they're not well educated, and you know, we are the civilized people, we have to do all this for them. This was part of the civilizing mission in the American sense, quite different from the colonial sense. And then the, uh, then the experience of bringing slaves, and uh, the, whole, uh, the, the whole processing of who they are and why they're inferior. And then the invasion of Mexico based on no provocation, no logic, no, no reason other than they're primitive people, they're beating up their wives, they're sitting drunk all day, and they're not very cultured, so we should, we should invade them. So this, this type of literature, the literature that was developed to depict the other in a certain way has a technical term in the U.S. history. It's called atrocity literature. Atrocity literature means all the compilation of all the things that you can find about others. So if you need to one day invade them, you can quickly push the button and a lot of atrocity literature will start pumping out on CNN. Okay. It's very interesting when the U.S. decided that uh, Saddam Hussein should be gotten rid of. Within three days, 
the CNN, all the channels were full of documentaries and uh, interviews with these women got abused and this one got, and these are things they had been building up for 10, 15 years. It's not like they could build up so much documentary overnight. They, they had it sitting in reserve. They have data banks of atrocity literature on India on Pakistan, on Bangladesh, on Russia, on China, all these things. So there are people whose job is to constantly come and study, go back and put all these reports of human rights abuses, women's abuses, this abuse, that abuse, and it feeds the database, database of atrocity literature just in case it becomes useful one day. Okay, so this is a very serious game which a lot of Indians are involved in playing being funded for doing so-called good work, but as part of this good work, they're also feeding the atrocity literature. And they're also serving as what I call the modern sepoys, a huge army of Indian sepoys. These are not the ones wearing with a gun and that uniform like the British in the British era. Uh, these are people who are doing NGO work. A lot of the NGOs are foreign sepoys. They are, they are doing that work. They are doing work which Indians can do better, cheaper than sending a bunch of white guys to do the work. So these are sepoys that are coming useful. Some are not going to be usable because they are very Indian patriotic. Some are more compromisable. Some have a price that they, they can be bought off at the right time. Some already have been bought off. Some are ideologically very uh, full of hatred of India anyway. Um, but but so, so you can't characterize all of them in one put them all in one box. They are all over the spectrum. So, but this is part of what goes on in the foreign funding uh, is to collect atrocity literature, to, to uh, build a network of uh, your own uh, kind of people who are on your wavelength. And uh, the other thing is the, uh, the export of terminology framework. What is human rights? Who, how do you decide what constitutes human rights? You know, when they, when they were developing the Charter for Genocide, which later became enacted as UN Charter for Genocide. I don't know if you know this, but the original definition of genocide, which was not adopted, included a clause called cultural genocide. Cultural genocide meant that if you go and you, you destroy the culture of people, even though physically you not harm them, you've taken away their language, they've taken away their religion, you've taken away their way of life, that is considered cultural genocide. It was considered an international illegal criminal offense under the original definition, original draft, and the Western countries deleted that. So there is no, there is no cultural def, uh, genocide category today. There is only genocide, which is physical genocide. You physically kill people, that is so. But if you, if they are, if they are, way of life is gone as long as they are well fed and they are wearing Nike shoes and they are having smartphones and they have good clothes, then you know you have done nothing wrong because uh, on a physical material plane they are well looked after. The, this, uh, this issue uh, of uh, f uh, foreign funded NGOs has, I mean I have only, I think I am running out of time, but this is something you need a full workshop, full day workshop to just understand how the foreign nexus operates. Because all of you are looking at how you at the receiving end are coping with it. Some are coping with it nicely, some have compromised, some have not compromised, some are saying we have no choice, some are saying they are doing us good. All that you are doing at the receiving end, but why aren't you, why aren't more people doing what I am doing, which I alone can't do? Why aren't more people going and setting up an NGO over there to study them the way they set up NGOs to study us? 
So there are so any number of NGOs in India, Western NGOs studying all kind of Indian society, how government works, how this one works. Why is the Indian government? Why haven't Tata's, Bidla's, Amani's, all these really wealthy people set up an NGO and said, "You give us annual report on uh, human rights problems there. What are what is their relationship?" You see, if you look at if you look at, uh, you should know how to talk back. Also, for instance, when Obama wrote this thing about uh, religious freedom and uh, you know human rights. I mean, none of the Indian guys knew what to like to say. I wish I had a, I had a way to say it. I, I have, I have written, I have written a lot of articles on this. There is a U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, uh, which is set up. Uh, it's a part of the U.S. Congress. It reports to the State Department and the CIA, and, and its job is to monitor so-called religious freedom. And it works with church groups in various countries and get one-sided input. And then they produce reports sanctioning and uh, putting, uh, saying that this country is uh, in the danger list and this country there are no human rights. So he was obviously getting his data from there. Okay, he was getting his data from there. But I have written in my books, I have criticized the U.S. Commission. I have taken apart their reports on India year after year and given rebuttals on what the errors are. Nobody else has done that, but I've been, I've been doing it alone. And this U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom does not have a single Hindu or a single Buddhist or a single Jain or a single Sikh. They're all mostly Christians and certain amount of Jews and because of huge pressure from Muslims, they have a certain amount of Muslims. So the Abrahamic religions are the ones who are monitoring the world idea of religious freedom according to their own definition. And if you read reports by blacks, Christians, well-known black Christians, they will tell you that the segregation in the church in the United States is so intense. In fact, blacks will tell you that the church is the most racially segregated institution in the United States, more segregated than schools, offices, uh, neighborhoods, uh, government jobs. I mean, other, other areas have done a much better job of desegregating and mixing people up. But the church itself, I mean, there's black churches, uh, you know, there's, there's different churches are by race. There's a Korean church. They, they, in fact, the Indian Christian, they got a Malayali church different than a Tamil church. So, uh, this is true. You, so, these are things you are not told. And uh, when somebody tells you all kind of stuff, you are apologetic because you do not know how to talk back. So, you need to know this information in order to become confident, in order to know how to talk back. I am not saying that our country is without problems. We, our Hinduism is without problems. We got a lot of problems. I'm terribly sorry that we have the problems. We must solve those problems. We must admit to those problems. We need help to solve those problems. But we do not have to ab abandon who we are because somebody else got, a, got all their act together because the doctor who's coming here to fix your problems got the same disease himself and probably even worse. And, and uh, I had another project. I, I asked... Uh, I asked some, you know, I hired a lot of university students, they're very enthusiastic. You know, these white Christian university students are very enthusiastic about what I'm doing because they, just like we got these uh, uh, liberal type people who are counterculture in our sense, they also got those kind of people. So I hired these kind of people. And so one of the projects we did is we said, let's collect uh, international statistics on crime and human rights problems in different countries. So we looked at some poor. Uh, uh, you know, uh, former colonial Christian countries like Mexico, like Philippines. Because if you want to comp compare poor countries, you should compare with poor countries. You can't compare a poor country with a rich country. So we took poor Christian countries like Philippines and Mexico, and we took some poor, you know, uh, Muslim countries in Africa and so on. And then we took India, and we scaled the statistics to population. 
because you can't say that there are 50 rapes in India, but there's billion people. You can't compare it with a country uh, if it has only 20 million people. So we scaled it per million, per million population. And the statistics of these Christian uh, countries and some of these Muslim countries on a per capita or per million population basis for these human rights is far, far worse, sometimes three, four, five times worse statistics. So what I tell my uh, Christian friends in the United States is you should go to the Christian countries and fix these problems first because you converted them on the promise that you will solve these problems. You should make good on that promise before you go and market it elsewhere. And you should... And you don't even need to go outside the United States. You go, I live in Princeton, which is a very sort of high-end kind of town, but right next to us is Trenton, which is the state capital of New Jersey. And Trenton is a very, a lot of crime, a lot of poverty, a lot of drug abuse, a lot of uh, HIV, single moms, rapes, whatever. You look at the statistics right there in the United States, in the inner cities, and it is, you cannot, you take those and you compare them with the so-called third world. There is a third world inside the United States, and so these Christians have to solve their own problem right in their own backyard. So I think this business of meaning human rights, uh, you know, I, I had this uh, argument with uh, Suhail Seth, this guy I never met before, the, the Jaipur Literary Festival. And uh, I don't know if you saw the video, but he's saying how we should be very great, you know, we are so assimilative, uh, they brought us the tabla and this one brought us tandoori and this one brought English brought us cricket and whatnot. So I told him that this is the typical invasion theory of India, where every chapter is a invaders, inv which invader came. So first, the, supposedly the Aryans came and brought Sanskrit and Vedas. That is the theory. And then the Greeks came and brought philosophy because we didn't know how to think properly before that. And then a bunch of other invaders come and then the Mughals bring us some big buildings and they bring tandoori and the tikka and what under this uh, tabla. And then the British bring us uh, cricket and uh, English and so on. And then I said that now you, want, you should get the Americans to come and invade us and bring us human rights. <laughs> and so the whole group laughed and all that and he was very kind of, but that is exactly what we are doing is we are, we have this complex, a lot of our elite have this complex that we ourselves are incapable of solving problems and we now need to figure out America the China baby they will come and set up factories and we will all get factory jobs. We will be very assimilative, we will prove to the world that we are adaptive people. So, so I think the root cause in, in this is not the American, is not the uh, foreign evangelist and all that. It is the inferiority complex of the Indians. It is the Indians themselves who are colonized mentally, who just prefer the, you know, the, this uh, Firangi kind of association. Uh, so Firangi maybe he's almost like that. Something like that. So there is a whole spectrum of association uh, with, uh, with the dominant cultures and uh, the closer you are, uh, the more you are considered to have a status. I think this is the inferiority complex and uh, and the, the NGOs can take advantage, Can uh, foreign funded NGOs can become very, uh, have a lot of clout and take advantage precisely because Indians themselves have this complex and this, this problem. So my uh, idea, my, my concluding is that if you want, if you want ideas on what to do, I think you have to, uh, if you decontrol 
Hindu temples, there are several lakh Hindu temples which are under government control, whose total turnover in terms of uh, uh, what they collect is huge amount of money, but all goes to the government. Uh, if you were to uh, denationalize it and give it back to the community, uh, and, and there are some people for creating state-by-state -state organizations to con take over the temples, and these temples compete against NGOs to provide services, to provide education, to provide food, to provide shelter, uh, because that has been in our tradition Dharma is not religion. Dharma is not just about you and God. Dharma is also about looking after animals, looking after nature, environmentalism, looking after society, uh, 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 looking after yourself with yoga and all that. So the, if you were to really make them a centers of dharma in a very wide sense, not religious sense, but in a wide sense, I think you can give uh, the foreign NGOs and all these people a good run for the money. And, and, um, and the final comment I have is that a country that says we are the superpower, we got so many billionaires and this, that and that. I mean, it's a shame that we cannot even get enough funding from our own people to look to provide basic services and we need to go begging to other cultures and other countries and we're willing to sell ourselves out and we are willing to have them come and brainwash us and dictate terms and uh, work for them and so on. So we have outsourced our, our human rights. Uh, we have outsourced our basic uh, sense of uh, civic, civic responsibilities and uh, being able to think and analyze for ourselves. Uh, I'll stop here because it's a huge topic for me and would love to then take questions. Thank you. Okay. I want to ask a question from Mr. Malhotra. Mr. Malhotra, the investigation that you've done uh, through your NGO, what is an example of that in India? Can you identify some examples? Yeah, uh, I, I have a book called Breaking India. Uh, it's a 600-page book. Uh, we, we, do we have copies here? No. We can get you copies. Uh, I've given about 100 examples in that. Named people, named uh, institutions, both Western and Indian. But could you give one or two examples? One example is, one example, is, no, one example is the Dalit Freedom Network, which is based in Denver, which has offices in uh, U.S., US uh, affiliates in India and offices in uh, branches in uh, Europe. And they have pushed laws, uh, uh, you know, for human rights violations in India, in the European Union, in the British Parliament, in the U.S., uh, come very close to having sanctions imposed on India and the United Nations. So that's an example of an international agency which, whose India activity is collecting data, collecting data about atrocity literature so they can use it. But when you look at this data they present on atrocity literature, there is no opportunity given to cross-examine it, to falsify it, to show that it is biased, it is show it is one-sided. So this data which is collect, you see there's a whole network that goes around collecting this so-called atrocities against uh, against the Christians in, in all over India and without proper filtering and without proper analysis this gets reported all over and when it's reported and quoted enough time it becomes fact then it's, then it's presented before legal bodies and they take actual action. So this is the data gathering here going on. This is a very, very large, uh, large operation. Uh, there's also concern that uh, when you look at uh, one of my, uh, one of my co-author co of mine is a Tamil-based, and uh, uh, he did a lot of uh, undercover work. We went to various places in Tamil Nadu where there's a lot of aggressive evangelism going on, where changing the street names and they are. Uh, pressuring people to convert coercion either through uh, generally financial incentives uh, and also a lot of hate speech that uh, your, your, your gods are no good, you're going to go to hell. You know, you, uh, we've taken 
lot of leaflets that some of these evangelicals are giving out and had them, uh, I have a whole library of these, translated them into English, scanned them. Some of them are put online, so you can see them. They, 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 they give a, a negative, not, it's not just philosophically, intellectually debate where I disagree with you, that I do also, it's okay. But it's really down and dirty, ground level hatred. Hatred for our religious uh, icons, uh, whether it is uh, Devi, whether it is Ganesh, or whether it and Gurus, whether it is Ramakrishna, whether it is Vivekananda, these all of them have. There are so many writings I've shown. You can read all those. Where all many many of our major icons have been deconstructed and disabused in in many ways, abused, 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 ab abused in many ways, and uh, the the family structure. What is wrong with the family structure? So you you have to really read. Uh, the reports in anthropology, the reports in, in history, the reports in religious studies, uh, human rights, and you will, you will be uh, shocked at the amount of anti-Hindu venom uh, which is being funded, which is being supplied, and then how it is being put to use there. So this is a very big industry. But have you also investigated into anti you know, anti-venom about other religions that perhaps no, I have, is, I, is, is coming out from India? No, my, against Muslims, against no, Christians? No, no, my, my specialty, uh, you are doing that, a very good job of that already in India. Okay, okay, uh, I am based in the U.S., so I specialize in doing something nobody else is doing which is looking at U.S. institutions, U.S. think tanks, U.S. churches, U.S. government, what they are doing. And they are doing, they are not uh, doing anti-Christian kind of stuff. They are doing anti-Hindu stuff. Now the anti-Buddhist stuff has also started. There is also a, a, fair, a fairly large amount after 9-11, a fairly large amount of uh, analysis of Islam and finding out what all is wrong with it. So these are, these are things which are, it may be secular country in the terms of institution of government is separated from, uh, you know, the church and so on. But in terms of thinking about these issues, it is considered part of U.S. policy, U.S. Think, you go to any uh, degree, any program which is teaching international relations. My daughter is doing advanced degree in international relations. So I know what all they do, what are the topics and all that. One of the topics is uh, religious violence, religious conflict, and then they teach uh, what can the U.S. do in that place? Should we side with this guy against that guy? Can we buy off that guy? Who will favor us? What are the various tribes in that region? So the, uh, the use of religion as a weapon to understand and study and manipulate and intervene is very much a part of the thought process. We are told that don't talk about these things, like that. But the, the, that is just at the pop culture level. Okay. But as far as the institutions of power, the institutions where power is rested, they are very deeply involved in these kind of activities. Is, should there be any restriction uh, on Indian citizens, especially those working in some government agency or appointed by the government, should there be any restrictions uh, on them going to Washington, going to United Nations, going to the U.S. Congress and giving testimony against India on human rights and calling for economic sanctions. Now, I don't want to name people, but if you read my book, I have named Indians who have actually gone repeatedly, being paid by Western agencies, the same kind of people I'm talking about. Indians going there and giving testimony and saying, Indian citizens who over here have the face that are really patriotic and everything is nice and, and they get positions and posts, but they are the ones who are going there supplying this material and this atrocity 
atrocity literature and pleading to have sanctions against India. Should there be a law? Should it be of course, they should be tried and sentenced, to possibly to death or being a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> I no longer do that. I gave a lot of money, tried it, experimented it. The point is you put one professor here and one professor there. Each of them is surrounded by a whole department of lots of people on the other side. He, one guy can't change it. So we don't have critical mass to fund chairs in the U.S. and they cost $4 million each. It's a waste of money. But, and so I believe that this research and these chairs have to be in India, not in the Western world. However, now that I have changed from that model to this India-based model, unfortunately, a lot of Indian diasporas have now joined the bandwagon of doing what I used to propose earlier. So now it has become fashionable to go and set up chair in Harvard and Columbia and here and there and there. Uh, yeah, what we, so that's a very serious problem because what they're doing is they're feeding the opponent. Yeah. They're actually giving money to those guys. You're not going to change somebody's thinking by giving them money. Okay, you can't do I tried it and yeah, I lost all my money trying to get people to influence, but you can't do it. You can't do it. One example I'll give of this colonized mind is the use of the term of the categories left and right. These categories don't make sense in India. To, uh, in, the, in the beginning, somebody said there is two ideologies. There is a Western ideology and the, uh, this Indian right wing, as if the Western is left wing. But West has also got their left wing and their right wing. Okay. So, and also you must know that in the Western use of left and right, uh, the church is a right wing organization. The leftists consider church to be the biggest problem in the right wing. But when the same church comes here, it becomes a darling of the left. So Indians don't even know what is left and right. And you should, wait, wait, wait. You should also know the, 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 the origin of left and right. After the French Revolution, you know, French didn't take a bath, so they used to smell. But the rich people had uh, perfume, so they did not smell. And so the poor people, they didn't smell. So after the French Revolution, when the peasants were also being elected to the parliament, the parliament consisted of, the parliament consisted of peasants and rich landlords. 
and the peasants didn't want to sit with the landlords, the landlords didn't want to sit with the peasants because they all had these body kind of issues. So they were sitting on one side of the aisle and the other guys were sitting on the other side of the aisle. And so since they didn't really know each other's names, they would refer to the gentleman on the right said this and I'm responding and that guy would say uh, the gentleman on the left said this. So this became known as the left wing position and the right wing position. So, but in India we take a bath, we don't have that problem. <laughs> The left and the right I referred to was, left organizations take up pet issues, the right organizations take up pet issues. Okay, it's rarely, and I referred in the morning also to Endron, it's very rarely that the left and the right in India come together on issues. Was, was, that was the point I was making. No, 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 was Gandhi a left wing or a right wing? What, what were you going to say? He, is, he was a Gandhi right guy, he was a Gandhi right guy, so he was right wing. But he was, he was for the poor and he was a left wing guy. So no, it's not a joke, you know. No, 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 I think you should understand the spirit. Let's not dumb it down. Let's not dumb it down. Okay. What I'm trying to say is, there are pet issues that one side does not take up. And that is where the find a new name for that one side and the second side. Just find a new name. That's all. You have a problem with the name? I, 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 I really think we should find a new some name. issues that the right doesn't take up. Please understand. All we are saying is you write about that. Yes. But all of them behave very identically when they are in power. Of course. Okay. No, of course. So left, right difference disappears That's the moment the any party is in power, whether it's CPM or BJP. That's the reason we're looking but for what we are saying is, please let's find our own labels. That's all. Let's find our own descriptive terms. A society which cannot even define its own politics on its own terms is a very intellectually enslaved society. No problem. That's all I say. Left, no right, any. नमस्कार uh, example of how the interventions uh, created through these non-governmental organizations they are destabilizing the society recently there was a Mahisasur Metaidam Day at JNU so what was behind Mahisasur Metaidam Day actually it's a Christian theological concept, uh, concept of raising Constantine there is a deep contextualization strategy that is going on each of the ethnographic uh, community of India, it is being provided with a particular icon. Like in this particular case, Yadavas of the North India, they are being provided with the Mahisasur as their ancestor, and they are creating a, another kind of mythology that Durga was a prostitute sent by Brahmins to kill the indigenous people of uh, India long back, and in this way. They are creating this Bahujan concept, this Mulnivasi concept. After 2009 convention of UNO, suddenly we are hearing this Mulnivasi, Mulnivasi from all over India. Uh, recently, few months back, we heard about this Mulnivasi thing, Aryans and upper caste, lower caste, civil war kind of uh, these projections from our own very chief minister of a particular state, I will name it Bihar. So, this is not some, uh, simply something going on very innocently. These kind of projects are being implemented on the ground and certainly some, uh, there is a one particular magazine which has been highlighting this that is called a forward press and 
Uh, if I tell you that who are behind forward press because they advocate social justice, women right and these things through there and they are creating this Mysasur mythology and other kind of mythologies. But all the people behind this are some from some are from Bramlia Baptist Church Canada, some are from uh, some other churches and uh, uh, University Institute uh, Delhi and what they are doing ethnographic study with creating alternate subversive discourses and these kind of things are definitely going to create a situation that is a civil war situation that is the concern thank you very, very good. Uh, what, what, what was your name sir I didn't catch your name uh, no, no, my answer is in your question so what is that I come under scheduled drive that's not an answer <laughs> You were a Rajput. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. We did not say that. I have also not challenged him that why is he replicating the research that RAW does? Or, why, no, no, you thought, please think for yourself. I want you to think for myself. Thank you. In this case, you were thinking for himself. <laughs> Can I? Kalata Shanawa, I'm from Mumbai. So I'm the foreign. Let me get to the question. Three points. One is this, you know, what you talked of uh, the students that uh, have to get some one year of research. I think it's very important because what you talked of in Breaking India, I see it replicated in our so-called elitist institutions in India. You know, I've done my PhD. I'm not luckily, fortunately affiliated to any association or political party. So that allows me to say what I want without uh, vested interests, but Tata Institute, where I've done my PhD from, it's not even breaking India, it's breaking my family basically. My son has, my son did his master's there and I got my PhD degree at the same convention. And recently I just told him that, you know, my paper has been published in the Indian Journal of Mental Health. Oh, he said, congratulations, what is it about the undivided Hindu Rashtra? For him, I'm RSS, okay? So my family gets divided by this whole divide and rule policy. And I think you should be worried because children are the future of every society and nobody is talking of the Indian child. They form 40 to 45% of our population and this child today is completely colonized. You know, uh, uh, um, response to Mr. Dayal's safety nets we used to have families and communities as safety nets america has dismantled its families and communities we were collectivistic societies aparigriha and niraham bhavana today it's all about pleasure gratification and individual attainment the institute for 20 years i was not given the mic i was not invited for a conference there is an academic mafia there, Rajiv Malhotra's books, Arun Shauri's, Arun Shauri's, uh, Madhu Kishore's books are not there. No, I'm not allowed to talk. That's not fair. We're allowing you to talk. We're not. So my point here becomes safety nets should not come from the state. You don't outsource your families to the service industry that parents... That parents in Mumbai, I worked, my PhD is on 1100 mothers across families. It's an important study. Sir, uh, Shri Malhotra ji, my day is made listening to you. <laughs> because we are the victim of the cultural genocide that you are talking of. And the uh, lady, you wanted an example, Kha Panchayat Sadawan. 
we have been we have been cultural genocide which is taking place my days led and you have a recruit in me main aapko natmastak hota hu aur aapka shishya banunga dhanyawad ha ji yes you've been raising your hand for a long myself for gagan gandhi and i am advocate at delhi high court uh i came here fascinated with the ngo concept actually and uh, i am left with more questions than answers after uh, the we closing to and and i would uh, like to thank uh, mr rajiv malhotra for enlightening us and i just want to ask one thing that uh, given what he has discussed this means there is lot of room for the reverse engineering which is happening actually in us and uh, i just want to know the road map ahead if somebody is actually keen in working on that reverse engineering 